I mean, I called the book, We the Scientists. And one of the reasons why I chose that title, first, I wanted to echo We the People. I thought that that would resonate particularly with the U.S. audience. But also this notion of we the scientists, maybe instead of dividing up groups based on the type of expertise they have, maybe we should approach this as saying, we're all experts. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. Our guest is Amy Marcus, Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street Journal reporter and author of We the Scientists. In part two of our conversation, I asked her whether this new collaborative research model worked because it was aimed at saving children versus elderly populations with long-term chronic diseases like Alzheimer's? That's a really interesting question. I do think that with rare diseases, there can sometimes be more openness by the FDA to working directly with the patient groups because there are no other drugs around, you know, that work or are effective. But having said that, one of the groups that I write about in the book are patients with long COVID, those patients who were diagnosed with COVID and never got better, or whose symptoms continued months and months or sometimes years after their diagnosis. Now, COVID is certainly not a rare disease, right? I mean, millions of people got COVID and are still getting COVID. And they themselves have advanced this model as patient researchers, and they've even taken it a step further. They've received grant money that they're doing the research and they're dispersing the money. So they're doing some innovative things themselves. So I don't think it's a model that would only work with rare diseases, but I do think that the model emerged maybe initially among these groups because of the confluence of factors that in rare disease groups, everybody knows each other. And you can kind of like get everyone in one room sometimes in a way that might be more difficult when you have a common disease. You also have a master's in bioethics from Harvard. The term citizen scientist has long been a pejorative in the scientific community. Where did that start? And Why is it a pejorative? And what do we have to do to change that? I don't think it's only pejorative, actually. I mean, these names, right? It's so hard to know what to call yourself, right? And a citizen scientist, that word has evolved. So for example, the long COVID researchers, patient researchers, they call themselves patient researchers rather than citizen scientists. And as part of my research for my bioethics degree, I did immerse myself in some of the scientific literature surrounding potential ethical guidelines for what they call patient-led research. So they didn't call it citizen science either. They called it patient-led research movement. So I agree with you that sometimes there's less acceptance by policymakers or scientists try to separate by using different words to separate those who receive formal professional training and those who don't. But I guess one of the things that I argue in the book and that many of the people I interviewed were arguing as well 
is that maybe we shouldn't use words that are different. I mean, I call the book, We the Scientists. And one of the reasons why I chose that title, first, I wanted to echo We the People. I thought that that would resonate particularly with a US audience. But also this notion of we the scientists, maybe instead of dividing up groups based on the type of expertise they have, maybe we should approach this as saying, we're all experts. We all have different forms of expertise. All of it is valuable. All of it is essential. And yes, for certain types of things, you're going to want someone that has a certain type of expertise. None of us want to go into surgery with someone who doesn't have an MD, right? We want people with qualifications and expertise. But I think the notion of we the scientists is saying, instead of like coming up with all these different names, why don't we embark on this and say, we have a shared goal. We want to have people live longer. We want to save lives. When we can't save lives, we want people to live as good a life as possible for as long as possible. We want to advance science. And to do that, we have to work together. And so if we think of ourselves all as being part of a larger group, producers of knowledge, producers of science, maybe that's a way of approaching this problem differently, and maybe it will yield better results. Amy, you've long reported on health-related innovations for the Wall Street Journal. Do you have a view on how artificial intelligence might be deployed in this new research model? I don't have enough expertise to weigh in on that. What I could just say generally is I think that technology and advances like the internet, for example, was one we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. They have been used in ways that allow people to organize and gather data and make contributions. Hopefully, the next wave of technological advances will do the same. But of course, how they're deployed and the way they work and what sort of guidelines exist around them to protect privacy, to ensure that there's not bias, all of those things will involve society. I think that as a society, we need to recognize that there are ethical questions involved with any enterprise we do together, and that the effects of what we're doing will expand beyond small groups of people. This is a broader theme that I talk about in the book. Therefore, all of us need to work together to make decisions together. You can't just have the scientists or the doctors or the policymakers or the patients deciding on their own, we have to think of ourselves as we the scientists and make decisions together. Reading your book, I wondered how we might replicate such a collaboration or model in the complex neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, where you have the issues of stigma and ageism that still abound. And then you have agencies like Medicare now challenging the authority of the FDA when drugs do receive accelerated approval. Any thoughts or cautionaries for advocates? Yeah, that's really important. And I do think that each group may have their own specific challenges that it would be hard to sort of say with a blanket statement, everyone should pursue this model or another model. It's going to depend on the specific scenario. But overall, one of the things I would say that would benefit advocates across groups 
is this. I think that there needs to be greater recognition of the value of the data that patients and advocates are collecting. I think that the government, meaning the agencies such as NIH, the FDA, and other agencies that get involved, I think that part of their mission should be to find ways to collect data together with patients and advocates. I think that it would be great if there was training available for people who are interested in it to enable them to be effective collaborators with the scientists and give them access under whatever ethical and regulatory reviews need to be done so that it doesn't interfere with people's privacy, but give patient researchers access to data that's collected so that they can also work on these questions together. I think that there's ways to do innovative models that will allow advocates to feel like they're partners and not just feel like it, but to be partners, to be recognized as partners, and to be in the room more when decisions are made, when clinical trials are devised. I mean, one reason we could hypothesize that it's so hard to fill sometimes clinical trials is because nobody asks patients and caregivers what they want, what risk benefit they're looking for, what the most important symptoms of the disease they want to see alleviated, what would uh, enable them to get their loved one into the trial. If they were co-generators and co-collaborators in devising trials, they might get filled faster and you might get answers to questions faster. So I think by looking at this through a different lens, it's going to improve the outcomes and maybe even address some of the problems that we've been seeing that make it so hard for the FDA to feel like they can weigh in on whether a drug is working or not. In the as a reporter embedded with sick children and their families, how hard was it to keep a professional distance yet still be very close and engaged? When you're writing, I think that you're trying to both bring the emotional resonance of the subject to the readers, but also recognizing that you're not the parent, you're not the doctor, you're not the scientist. I see my role as not distancing, actually. I see my role as bearing witness. I see my role as taking the public into the room, into the lab, into the family's home. Like I tried to immerse myself as much as possible. And I didn't try to wall off my emotions because I'm a person too. And, you know, you can't help but be sad and be moved and engage with the people you're meeting, the families, the children, and also the doctors, the researchers, and the scientists who are also bringing their hearts into everything. I don't know. I mean, I didn't consider myself a doctor treating a patient. I consider myself a person who's honored to bear witness and to topics and issues that I think are important and affect all of us, and then to try to bring the story back to anyone who's willing to read it and listen to it. Amy, thank you so much for what you've done. If you'll recall, in 1962, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, triggered an environmental movement. I personally believe your book has the potential to be a real game changer and transform how research is driven in the future that includes both the patient and the caregiver. Our guest has been Amy Marcus, Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street Journal reporter and author of the book, We the Scientists, How a Daring Team of Parents and Doctors Forged a New Path for Medicine. That's it for this edition. I'm Meryl Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. 
Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Genentech and ASI. For four decades, ASI's commitment to Alzheimer's disease has never wavered, even when faced with complexities and challenges that caused others to relinquish pursuit. ASI has never given up on developing therapeutic and ecosystem solutions for people and families living with Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.